0: What is that one thing that would change everything for you? Maybe you think back in your life and and maybe it's even, what's that one thing that has changed everything for you? The the more I thought on this question, the more I realized it's probably not just one thing, that there's all kinds of different things that could happen in our lives that would change everything. We've experienced these already most likely where there's been, been things in our life that have happened that have already changed Everything. I think we all come across these moments where there's that one sole truth or action or event that takes place that changes everything. If you're not uh, a big sports fan, let me clue you in. that The Super Bowl is going on today, uh, tonight. Um, If you're not sure who to root for, everyone else is rooting for the Falcons. So just jump on that bandwagon. Uh, No one wants to see the Patriots win again. Not everyone. Come on. We'll pray for you, brother. I'm just kidding. Uh, but we've all seen games before where you have that one crucial play that's an, an absolute switch of momentum. You know, a team goes from just getting their butts kicked to all of a sudden they're the ones running the ball down the field. Or, or there's that uh, seized opportunity due to the, the other team's error or a bad call that they capitalize on. Uh, we have these moments where, where everything in the game changes. If you're a history buff and you're familiar with different military battles and wars that have gone on, you could probably tell all kinds of stories where there was one decisive moment in a battle where something changed, something happened or occurred, whether it was planned or just happenstance. And it changed everything. Maybe it's something as simple as uh, an invading army that was in a new area eating new food and and, uh, kind of breathing, you know, in new diseases all of a sudden got ill and couldn't battle and and they lose because of a simple cold. Or maybe communications couldn't get through because of a a simple break in a wire and and there may be no other means to get an important message forward. At times where where code are used in in relating those messages, maybe there's a a moment where you're able to crack the enemy's code before they realize that you can use that to your advantage. We, We can see in all these different battles, decisive moments where everything changed. Maybe it's going from a, uh, what was looking to be a definite loss to all of a sudden a guaranteed win. And this is even in our, our personal lives. I mean, think about your relationships that you're in, your friendships and your family members and, and lo- other loved ones. Uh, maybe a little bit of info can either launch a brand new relationship or, or maybe even end one. You find out something, you discover an unknown truth that you didn't know about before. You discover the other one has been deceitful or or unfaithful. Or maybe it's the other way around, that that you're in a moment of of panic or emergency and and a friend comes through for you. And all of a sudden, that just changes everything. you, You haven't known each other long, but you know each other well because of some of the circumstances that you've been through. What truth or action or event has forever changed your life? Maybe as you grew up, you decided to move out of state, move away from home for for further education, or maybe even went abroad, and some of the things that happened there forever changed the, the trajectory of your life. Maybe you said yes to a marriage proposal, a business proposal, or an investment proposal that changed your life for, for the better or for worse, one way or the other. Maybe two purple lines on a pregnancy test forever changed your life. And maybe it brought about all kinds of excitement. Maybe it brought about all kinds of fear and concern, maybe it brought about a little bit of both, you know, we're not quite sure. Maybe there's an illness or a physical disability that had some long-term effects, whether you or that of a loved one. See, our, our lives are full of these defining moments. The more I thought about it, when I first was putting this together, I'm like, what, what is that one moment? I'm like, well, no, it's, it's not just this one moment. There's all kinds of things that happen uh, in our lives that change everything. They, they, they put us on a, a new course or a new direction. Some of these only affect us personally. Some affect our state or our nation or our entire globe. Some have an effect throughout all of history. Imagine a random person coming up to you, introducing themselves and said, hey, I'm, I'm Steve, I'm your new boss. Would that change anything in your life? Would that be a defining moment for you? Well, it depends. Is that person really your new boss? Or is there some whack job named Steve claiming to be your new boss? Now, now, maybe you're, you're at work and you found out that you just got bought out by another company and some guy walks down the hallway and introduces himself as your new boss. Chances are that that, that could be your new boss, but you're still, you're still not sure. You need to investigate more and find out more information. Maybe you're self-employed. Okay, now you definitely know this guy is not your new boss, but someone can make a claim that has the potential to have all kinds of ch- uh, uh, change or influ- uh, influence in your life. But until you look into that, And so you decide, is there truth to this? That's when we see, is this going to have a defining moment for me? You would examine this claim and then respond accordingly. If it's true, yes, that would change your days from that point forward. If it's false, I I, I don't very much would change at all. So hopefully when we come across moments like that, your goal is to seek truth, is to figure out, okay, what is really going on here? What is really the case? Throughout history, there have been many who have claimed to be God, and if any of them were were true, that would change everything. No, right? If someone claims to be God, and it's true, that that, that changes things, right? Uh, Imagine it was your sibling. James, a brother of Jesus, probably experienced this a little bit, and all of a sudden, they're claiming to be God. (laughs) That would change things a little bit, right? Oh, now I see why your mom and dad's favorite. Okay. In my 36 years on this earth, I've seen some who claim divinity only to end up dead in a showdown with the government or dead wearing their Nikes and purple robes or whatever that is. I mean, I've only come across, in my exploration, I've only come across one who has claimed to be God and has proven it. And I believe that person to be Jesus. In John 10, 30, Jesus says, I and the Father are one. I and the Father are one. I believe that's one of the times that Jesus is making clear that he is God. There are various other ones through the things that he does, through the things that when people respond to him, that he doesn't correct them. When they call him God, he doesn't correct them in that, but receives it. Someone look at this verse in John 10 and say, well, he's not saying that he is God. He's just saying he's unified with God. You know, like, like, I'm, I'm one with everyone here. We're, we're all one in this together. I'm, I'm one with God. But you keep reading in that verse, John 10, 31 through 33. He's, he said this to a, a Jewish audience who would be on the lookout for the Messiah. And it says this, the Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? I, I, I've done all kinds of great things in your midst. Which one of these is the reason why you're going to try to kill me with stones here? The Jews answered him, verse 33. It is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you being a man, make yourself God. And that makes it very clear what they understood him to be saying. They saw him as only a man. And so when he says, I and the Father are one, they heard it very clearly as he's claiming to be God. And because they didn't believe it to be true, they then viewed it as blasphemy. And hence, they're going to pick up stones to stone him. The disciples, those closest to Jesus, they also believed that Jesus was God. John uh, begins his gospel with a clear acknowledgement of who Jesus is. We read some of that here this morning to begin our time. Uh, I want to go over that again, but I want to jump to also verse 14. uh, Verse 1 and 2, John 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word uh, was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Let me jump to verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And we continue to read John chapter 1, and we see this context just continue to build and build and build. And the more you look at it, it's very clear. John is talking about Jesus as the Word. In the beginning was the Word, meaning he was here from the very beginning, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Then we also see verse 14, this, this God incarnate, that Jesus was both fully man and fully God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Now, now, most other religions will acknowledge that Jesus existed. I think simply from a historical standpoint, that there's so much evidence, so much that says, yes, this is someone who lived in history. It's almost intellectual suicide to say that he never existed. Just like the guy whose name Steve who comes and says, I'm your new boss. You could say, yeah, you exist. You're right in front of me. You're saying stuff. But is he right? Is he true? As I've already shared, I, I believe, yes, that, that, that Jesus was God. And, and, and most other religions, while they acknowledge that he existed, they, they, they come to different terms with his divinity. That's where there's a divergence between Christianity and other faiths. Muslims would see Jesus as a prophet. That they would see him as a precursor to Muhammad. And there's all kinds of other ways in which, uh, there's some other differences in there. But you can see that they would just say he was simply a prophet, that he wasn't divine. The Jews would see him as a rabbi, but not the the, the coming Messiah. The one who would rescue them. They said, no, it wasn't Jesus. He was a a good teacher. Mormons would say that he was a son of God, but he was a son of, of someone who became a god. And so their, their whole understanding of God is flawed. They wouldn't, they wouldn't see God as this almighty uh, a God of, of the scriptures that we see, how God has revealed himself to be, but as someone who, through a system of, of works and understanding, became God, became a God, and then had a son, Jesus. Jesus. The Hindus would see Jesus as a holy man. Uh, maybe some of those who would maybe attest some divinity to him because there's even uh, different divergences within uh, other religions. Um, those who would see him as a god would see him one of many gods. And then the Buddhists would see him as an enlightened man on the path to nirvana. See, if Jesus is God, then what he says matters. And the more that I've looked into this in my life, I continue to, to just, one thing I love about Jesus is he's got big shoulders. He's not afraid of our questions. If you're asking questions about God and someone says, oh, oh don't ask that question. We, we don't talk about that. Then go find someone to ask the question to. That means it's probably a good question. God's got big shoulders. He can handle our questions. There's passages of scripture There's questions that I've come across myself where I'm like, God, I'm not sure what to make of this. I'm not sure how how this fits into my understanding of who you are. And so either A, I'm not understanding it correctly or B, my understanding of who you are is off. And sometimes there's some challenging verses out there. We could do a whole series about some of the most difficult verses in the Bible to get our head around. But but here's where I find hope is is that when I look at who who Jesus claims to be, And who he reveals himself to be is that, yeah, I believe he's God. I'm with that guy. I'm with Jesus. And if Jesus supports the Old Testament, okay, I'm with him. And so, yeah, I may not understand it all right now. I may never in this life. But I'm with Jesus. And so are there still questions? Are there still um, things I would still want to know? Yes. But Jesus made it clear that he was God, and, and I believe that. Have you examined that? Have you looked into this for yourself? If not, I encourage you, I invite you to do just that. Uh, if you need a place to start, I would recommend uh, getting a Bible. If you don't have one, take one of the ones that we have, make it your own, put your name in it, highlight, uh, circle, make notes, write questions. Uh, if you want to go online, U uh, Version is a great one, have all kinds of different translations. You can get there, you can put it on your phone, your smartphone or, or a tablet. Uh, there's Wi-Fi in the building right now if you want to download it right now. But get the Word of God in front of you and go to the beginning of the New Testament, which is the second half of the book, and read through the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And you'll see four different perspectives written to four different audiences on the same person. Some people say, oh, there's all these contradictions, or one says this, another one says that, and they don't say anything about this and some of those things. It's four people telling the same story. And as you acknowledge that and see how it all comes together, you see, man, this builds the picture of what Jesus did when he was here on this earth. So if you haven't looked into the truth of who Jesus is, that's one place I would invite you to start. It's with the Gospels. As we look into what Jesus did and said, one of the things that we see is very often he attracts a crowd. I, I, I love this about Jesus too. He, he would attract a crowd. People would see him coming would he, he would be doing different things. And say, hey, let's go check that out over there. If you have your Bibles with you, go ahead and open to Matthew chapter 4. Uh, Matthew, we're going to begin in verse 23 of chapter 4, and this comes uh, after Jesus has, has selected his uh, 12 disciples. And we pick up here in verse 23. Matthew chapter 4, verse 23. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics. And he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis. And from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. So we got this picture of what Jesus has been doing. So he's he's teaching, he's healing. Now if you're a skeptic, I, I get that. There's this this part's me I can relate to that as well, being a skeptic. Really? Okay, he's teaching on some neat stuff, okay? that would be worth, worthy to go see that, okay? Oh, he, he was healing some people, okay? You went in to see Jesus, you had a cold, and now you're not sniffling anymore. Big whoop, okay, really, yeah, he healed you. But some, and then he's healing paralytics. That's one that's gonna be hard to get your head around, right? We, we, we have stories where someone's been paralyzed from birth, you know, where, where uh, four friends lower a man through a roof because he's been paralyzed since birth, I mean, if everyone knows the story, everyone, his friends, and his time is what I'm saying by everyone, and they, they knew this man was paralyzed. I love this story because they, they lower him down, and Jesus says, your sins are forgiven, which again is another profession of being God, because that was something in Jewish culture, that only God could forgive sin. And He said, your sins are forgiven. And they call him out, and like, oh, whoa, yeah, okay, you're just going to forgive his sins? Who are you? Okay, get up and walk. And he heals this paralytic. Imagine seeing that guy the next day. You walk by him, he's laying on his mat, he's paralyzed, and you see him the next day. What happened to you? you, you, you right? You, you got a haircut? What's different? No, you're walking. Yeah, I saw Jesus. He healed me. And so I, I know some of us are, are skeptics, and we would, oh, I don't know. I don't, but Jesus is doing all these amazing things, and it's drawing a crowd. And people are gathering around. They want to see what is going on. What, what, what would it take for you to believe? If you haven't answered that question in your life, if you don't believe that Jesus is God, what would it take for you to believe? Because I think sometimes we just, we just, we fight it, we resist it, Like, we know what is true. but We just go, I oh, no, know what about this, what about that? And again, ask those questions. Ask those questions, but dig down in your heart. Say, what, what, what is, what's holding you back? What's holding you back from seeing and acknowledging what is true? So Jesus sees this crowd, and he begins to teach. And this brings us to uh, Matthew chapter 5. This is called the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, This is the longest recorded uh, sermon we have uh, from Jesus out of any of the Gospels. Uh, The time that I've been familiar with, I've always kind of seen it as like this index. If you want to know how how to live, how how to live like a follower of Jesus, you go to the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, and you'll probably find what you're looking for. I mean, Jesus pretty much covers a little bit of everything. But then I started to ask this question, well, why, why was the crowd gathering? Why were they there listening to this teaching? Yeah, I kind of let that just marinate a little bit. And sure, maybe some were, we're somewhere there just to see a show. Hey, I heard this guy can heal the sick. I, I heard he can cure leprosy and he can, you know, he can give uh, sight to the blind and, and the lame can walk. I, I want to see that happen. I think it'd be fantastic to see. Maybe they weren't even interested in, in really who he was. But I think many were there because they want to know. Who is this guy that can do all this? Who is this guy that that says these things? Who claims to be God? And that's why we're we're taking 10 weeks here for our next series. Our next series is called Engaging Jesus, A Journey Through the Sermon on the Mount. So on one hand, as you walk through the Sermon on the Mount, we're going to see different things. uh, Here's what we can go and do. If you're asking the question, what should I do as a follower of Jesus? We're going to be talking about that for the next 10 weeks. But I want us to begin with this place. You see, It's not so much about what we're doing, but first and foremost about engaging Jesus. His audience who was there were there because they wanted to hear from Jesus. Not just because they wanted to hear, what should I go do with my life? They were interested in who he was and who he was claiming to be and what he could do. And so this crowd gathers around. And let us begin with a similar heart of wanting to know and engage with Jesus. See, I grew up in a religion that, that taught me what to do, taught me how to live. Here's the things you do. You go to church on Sunday, and, and, and you give a little, and you serve a little, and you're kind, um, and you don't use these words uh, unless you're really angry or really hurt yourself. Um, and, and we all probably have our own you know, different set of family rules you grew up with, and that's kind of what it was for me. It was just, well, here's the religion I grew up in, and it just kind of became this set of family rules. And so I knew the What? I missed the why. I, I, I missed the whole engaging Jesus part. And so I, as I grew, I, I got to this point where uh, uh, I was really starting to question, well, why am I doing the things that I'm doing? Well, what's the heart behind them? Man, a lot of those things just felt like a checklist. It felt like this, this works-driven, guilt-based, I, I, I don't want to mess up, I don't want to tick off God, I, I don't want to go against uh, you know, what God asked me to do and, and, and make him angry with me. I feel like if I, if I sin, if I do something wrong, if I don't do one of my checklists, then God's going to be angry with me. And, I, and I'm not going to experience any blessing. And yeah, this was my, my mindset. Because all I had was the here's what you go and do. And if that's all we have, it becomes very legalistic very quickly. It becomes very empty very quickly. But fortunately, uh, God got a hold of me and I got this place of engaging Jesus, of asking who is Jesus and seeing the truth that, yes, he is the Son of God, that he is the Savior, that he is Lord. And I surrendered myself to him, and I trusted in him for the forgiveness of sin, and I I seek after him to see how should I live in life. And now when I come across something that's difficult, maybe something that I, I don't even fully believe in yet, but I see this is what God's calling me to, I can at least say, I'm with you, Jesus. Help me to work through this. Help bring me to a place of obedience. When I fail, it's not just, okay, God's mad at me because I didn't check this box on my religious checklist. But it's a place of, I know that there is forgiveness. And it moves me to a place of, of repentance for my wrongdoing and knowing that I'm forgiven in Jesus. That God's heart isn't for, for us all to sit in a place of, of guilt, but to acknowledge that that sin's been paid and, and to move out of that place of guilt, into a place of power as we live for him and make his name known in this world. And so my invitation for all of us for these next 10 weeks of this series is to engage with Jesus. I know that's kind of broad there, and I'm not going to go much more narrow today. We'll we'll talk about different ways as we walk through the Sermon on the Mount. What does it look like to engage with Jesus? Um, But this could be anything from, maybe you say, in this season of life, you want to grow in in your worship experience. Maybe you've really never understood what does it mean to worship God, whether through giving or through song or through serving. Um, Maybe you're not really sure. You want to grow in that way. You want to engage Him there. Maybe you want to engage Him in your prayer life. You feel like, you know what, I don't really talk to God much through prayer. Or or maybe I'm not really familiar with His Word, and you want to engage through reading of Scripture. Maybe there's a social or theological question that you've always had. You've always longed for an answer. Maybe this is your season where you pursue that answer. Now, whether or not you get it, I don't know. Those questions I've asked of God, and I'm still left wondering. But he'll meet with me there. And he'll walk me through a place through his word where I can understand more who he is and what he's like, even if I don't get the answer I've been looking for and so maybe there's a question you have about life, and, and, and engaging Jesus in this season is going to be pursuing that and researching and looking into that and talking to other uh, trusted people about what that, where those answers could be found. Maybe engaging with Jesus is serving in a new way. Maybe you feel like, you know what, you, you've been very safe and calculated and always, you know, you, you'll take those opportunities to serve as long as you can control all the circumstances. And you feel like God's saying, you know what, here's a scary place that I want you to serve. And scary doesn't have to mean where your life is on the line. Maybe you're an extreme introvert and people terrify you. And the way that Jesus that you can engage in Jesus is serving with other people. Maybe you're an extreme extrovert. And a way you can engage with Jesus this season, a scary place He's calling you is to spend time alone in solitude with Him. Because you're always passing up time with Him for time with other people. I don't know what it is for you. Maybe something's came to mind, come to mind already for you. Maybe not. That's okay. Be thinking about this. I invite you that you would, we would join together in engaging with Jesus. For someone of us out there, if you're not a follower of Jesus, I ask that you would explore the divinity of him. I ask you to explore the divinity of Jesus. My hope and prayer for you is that you would see Jesus for who he claims to be and who he proved himself to be, the Son of God, that move you to a place of salvation where you trust in him for the forgiveness of your sin, that we can celebrate that with you as you take a step of obedience and baptism this Easter. What a beautiful picture that would be. So we're going to engage with Jesus through this journey through the Sermon on the Mount. He covers a lot of topics, and a lot of times uh, what Jesus calls us to is is more than we would expect. He talks about, hey, you thought it was this way. Let's go another step further. And he really, you know, rips the scab right off of any wounds that we have. Say, so, hey, you know what, we're, we're going to go deeper in this. We're going to figure this stuff out. So let us be willing to say, I'm going to follow Jesus on this. Whatever, whatever that would be, whatever he's calling us to, whatever steps he's asking us to take or a difference he's asking us to live or make, to be willing to say, because of who Jesus claims to be, that changes everything, so I'm with him. Let's jump in the Sermon on the Mount here. Matthew chapter 5, verse 1 and 2. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying. An important question to ask uh, is, who's talking? Anytime you're reading scripture, ask this question. Who's talking? And who are they talking to? Because one of the things that will help you figure out is, is this verse uh, descriptive? Is it simply describing what took place And what transpired? Or is it prescriptive? Is it saying this is how we should also go and live? Is it telling us about who God is? Or is it telling us just here's something that happened? So who is talking to who? And so when we look at this, Jesus is talking. Um, well, it, it, he will be talking here in a moment. because It says uh, he opened his mouth uh, to the, and taught them same. But the bigger question is who is he talking to? We have a couple clues here. One, seeing the crowds. Some would jump right to where it says that his disciples came to him and say he's just talking to his disciples. But it begins with, with seeing the crowd. So, so he sees all the people around and he goes up on the mountain. Someone's oh always no, withdrawing to this mountainside where, where no one can see him. Although the imagery here is, is uh, I mean, it really creates a natural amphitheater, almost go to the foothills of a mountain where he'd be up elevated. His voice would carry out over a crowd of people. And so Jesus speaking. Who is he speaking to? One, his disciples, as he sits down. And, and even that phraseology, uh, he sat down, what would have been common with Jewish writings about, okay, a, a rabbi is going to sit down. Okay, now it's time to preach. Now it's time to teach. And so we see he's sitting down to teach. And he's speaking to his disciples who gather around. And we have every reason to believe it was more than just the 12. We see throughout scripture that there were more than the 12 disciples. The 12 he spent more time with. But there were many others who would be considered disciples of Jesus. And so they're gathered around. And it is, there's an audience growing around this as well. You know, with where he is and with what he's doing, most likely it's a predominantly Jewish audience. Those who would be, uh, say, we're part of the people of God who are looking for this Messiah, who are trying to ask, who is Jesus? And so these words that he's speaking, he's speaking to his followers and those who are pursuing God. And so if we find ourselves in those same positions, we can say, hey, there's some truth for this, for us as well. For what God will call them to do, the, the same could be a call in our lives. Some would believe that this is just a, a collection of teachings that Matthew threw together. Um, but I I, say, I I don't see that. As you read through it, you actually see a very clear beginning and a very clear ending. You know, begins, seeing the crowds, you know, he, he sat down and began to, to teach. And uh, we, we also see Matthew 7, 28, 29, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teachings, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. There's a clear beginning, a clear end. And so we have every reason to believe that He just sat down and said, hey, let's talk about some stuff. Because of who I am, let me, let me change your understanding of the world around you. Where we stand, knowing how the story plays out, we can say, because of who Jesus is, how does that change our lives? What's different? What's different? Well, Sermon on the Mount begins with what's known as the Beatitudes. Uh, Beatitudes, that, that, that term simply comes from uh, a, a Latin term for blessing because we have eight statements about blessed is, blessed is, blessed is. And it talks about all these people who be blessed. And so that's all the Beatitudes means. It's, it's these, these phrases of blessing. And a few things I want you to think about. This applies to the Beatitudes, but also the first to apply to the entirety of the Sermon on the Mount. First one is this. The Sermon on the Mount is not a checklist of how to be saved, but a picture of how the saved live. So it's not a checklist for how to be saved, but it's a picture for how those who are saved live. And what's, what's significant about that? What's the difference between that? Well, one, if we look at it from this, okay, what do I need to do to be saved? Looking for this checklist, all of a sudden becomes this work-based, which is contrary to everything Jesus is going to say. We're looking, okay, I need to do this, I need to do this. Okay, now I've, I've got God's favor, right? That's not what the Sermon on the Mount is. What the Sermon on the Mount is, it's saying, this is what it looks like when you follow God. This is what it looks like when, when, when you've trusted in, in Him, when your faith is in God. We should emphasize in Ephesians 2, verse 8, it talks about it's by grace through faith that we've been saved. It's by grace through faith that we've been saved. It's not by our works. It's not by can we do all the things we're talk about over the next ten weeks? Because if it's that, let me give you a hint. I've already failed. We've all failed. It won't take long to get into these weeks. We're all yep. No, no, that's something that I failed at. So this is not a checklist for how to be saved, but it's a picture for what our life should look like. And off of that, because of that, it's not a trip of guilt, but a journey of instruction and conviction. It's not a trip of guilt, but a journey of instruction and conviction. Again, I don't see a heart of, of guilt where, where Jesus is trying to like, hey, let me make you all feel bad about yourself for a moment. Let's just read through this sermon. You know? But he's instructing those who are following him and those who want to know who he is, saying this is what it looks like if you're going to follow me. He's instructing. Is some of this going to be convicting? Well, Jesus has to turn left here, and I've been turning right my whole life. Yeah, there might be some things that are convicting. There might be some things that that are hard to hear. Because we see it, yes, this requires a change in my life. But this isn't a trip of guilt, but one of instruction and conviction. Do you like french fries? When does a french fry become a french fry? I mean, I, I, I like to think that a french fry becomes a french fry as soon as it's cut. So you take a potato, you wash it, peel it, maybe you don't peel it, I don't know, and you cut it. Hopefully you got one of those like crinkle cut ones, those are just fun. Or the waffle ones, those are winners too, yay Chick-fil-A. I like to think as soon as that fry is cut, it's a French fry. Now is it one that you want to eat? Probably not. We got to fry it first, you put it in the fryer and it's going to get that nice crispy golden brown outside, crunchy. It's still soft and warm and gooey on the inside. Then you to put way too much salt, more than your mom would want you to put on it, whatever you do. And now it's something we really want to enjoy. That's kind of an illustration between the difference of justification and sanctification. When we trust in Jesus as our Lord and Savior, we are justified. We are made right in the eyes of God. We become a french fry. But there's still work to be done. There's still work to be done. So we've got to go in the oil. And it gets hot sometimes. It's, it's, it doesn't feel good. It's not always fun. But man, when, when that work, that frail is done, man, there's something that just everybody wants, right? <laughs> that's, that's the goal. All the other French fries are like, ooh, I want to be like that guy. Um, so we're justified in Christ. When we trust in Jesus, when we follow Jesus, man, we are made a saint. We are forgiven of our sin. We, are, uh, we can be uh, confident that our future will be in heaven with God but there's still work to be done. Hopefully that, that unpacks that concept in a new way. It's okay, yes, I, I know I'm forgiven, but there's still, okay, there's still a life that I'm walking through. So I'm gonna to to seek forgiveness when I sin and repent of those sins and, and, and know that God's forgiveness will still be there. But it doesn't change who I am. It's like when we're adopted into a family. Uh, when you mess up or make a mistake in that family, you don't lose the title of, of being part of that family. You know, it's not that you're, oh, you're not a family member anymore. No, you're, you're part of that family for life, for good. So it's not a checklist of how to be saved, but a picture of how the saved live. It's not a guilt trip, but a journey of instruction and conviction. This one is specific to, to the, the Beatitudes here. This section of the Sermon on the Mount, it's not about being happy because of something that goes right, but an inner joy and peace from being right with God. All these statements of blessings. It's not about being happy because of something that goes right. Just because your team wins tonight doesn't mean, you know, it's not that kind of happiness. Well, that's fun. Just because you got the last bit of the nacho dip, you know, that's something to be happy about. Tweet it, Facebook it, definitely praise that, awesome. But that's gonna pass as soon as your stomach settles. The blessing that, that's being referred to here is that the inner joy and peace that comes from knowing that we are right with God. Knowing that, that, that we are in a, a position of right standing with God Almighty. Some of my greatest moments um, of knowing that I've been blessed have come in the midst of some of the most challenging times of my life, even in small ways, too. I, I think a few times where um, you work through conflict with a loved one or, or a family member. Um, I, every time I do marriage counseling, I, I, tell, I ask them, Hey, has anyone ever told you that first year of marriage is the hardest? If they say yes, it's a lie. It's a lie. It could be any year. You never know. (laughs) And for my wife and I, it wasn't anything major, but we just had all these years of what a bliss, and everything was going along easy, and there weren't any major conflicts. And somewhere in year seven, I couldn't even tell you what all the details were around it. I just remember there was this moment of year seven where both of us were hurt and upset, and we didn't know why. And it led to conflict and fights, and we stuck through it, and we worked through it, and came to this point of peace. And man, man, am I blessed with the woman that God has, has given me as my wife. What a blessing she is to me. And I, and I realized that in those moments of difficulty, when we got to that place of all of sudden resolution, man, I was struck by how blessed I was. My one-year-old son is mastering the art of the wine, um, and he's pretty darn good at it. And uh, yesterday it was just like, I mean, I, 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 my frustration was all the way to eleven, and, and it got to this point where I'm just like, just stop whining. And I, I just, I pick him up and I hold him close and I sit on the couch and I'm trying to help just calm him. And I'm just struck for a moment. All of a sudden, I look down at this this baby boy in my arms. And I'm like, I get to call him son. This is my boy. honestly, in that moment, thank God he calmed down and the whining stopped at least for that moment while we were having this little bonding time. But he could have whined his face off and it wouldn't have changed that realization that man, am I blessed that this is my son. So blessed isn't talking about a lack of conflict, but that inner joy and peace of knowing that you are right with God. So here's what we're going to do. I'm going to give about the least amount of time to the Beatitudes that I imagine anyone has ever given in any sermon anywhere. Because, we got roughly eight of them. Some people break up the eighth one into a couple different ones because it says blessed like three times in there. It's really one. So there's eight of them and each one could be its own week. We could unpack this and this could be the whole series but we want to get through the whole Sermon on the Mount and so what I to do is I just want to hit on each one of these briefly and they're going to bring up different character traits of well, here's what it looks like to follow Jesus and hopefully one or two is going to hit you a different way like, hey you know what that, that's something that I think that, that's not what my life looks like and maybe that's how you can engage in Jesus in the season ahead is saying, okay, how can I be a person like that? How can I be more like what it would be to be a follower of Jesus? So, as I kind of zip through these, just be asking that question. Don't feel like you have to get all eight, don't feel like you have to have a, a full grasp and understanding. Uh, and if you do, awesome. I mean, that's cool. But I'm going to zip through these quick. But wait, when you find that one or two that just strike you or just kind of hits a little close to home, Okay, jot that one down, tune out if you want. That's okay, I won't take it personally. And then we'll wrap up with one closing thought and some awesome worship. So the first one we get here is verse three. Blessed are the poor in spirit. And all these have a condition and then a promise. A condition and then a promise. Listen for those. Blessed are the poor in spirit, that's the condition, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That's the promise. Again, the poor in spirit, Why, why, why is that a good thing? Again, we're talking about something inner, Necessarily, an exterior advantage. This poor in the spirit, spirit phrase uh, in the Old Testament this would imply one whose hope was in God. It's like a beggar who has no, no way of providing for their own needs. Poor in spirit. They have no way of, you know, if you're financially poor, you have no way of, of paying for what you, you need. If you're spiritually poor, you have no way of, of providing for your own needs spiritually. One who is poor in spirit has all their hope in God because there's nothing they can do on their own. And Jesus is saying, those who know that, who realize that their hope needs to be in God are blessed. Why? Because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And, and many of these, it's just another way of phrasing that, hey, the blessing is that God is with you, that you will have God, that you'll be a part of his family, you'll be a part of his reign and his realm. So blessed are the poor in spirit, for their hope is going to be in God. We see this in Abraham. In Hebrews, talks about how his faith was accredited to him as righteousness. His hope was in God. His belief was in him. Matthew 5, 4. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Again, this heart of mourning, as we continue to unpack, it, we begin to see it's talking about a response to our sin and the sin of the world, a sorrow, a sadness, a mourning for the condition of man before God because of our sin. And so those who understand that are blessed because they'll be comforted. They'll be comforted that that, that one is standing before them who is the Messiah, who will remove the reason for that mourning, who will deal with sin in their life, who will deal with sin in the world. And so maybe there's a heart of repentance we can learn in there. We have a heart of hope, a heart of repentance. In Matthew 5, 5, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Uh, This is talking about a heart of humility. Recognizing our need for God leads us to this place of humility. No matter how strong you are, you can still be meek when you understand your need for God. You can be the toughest guy in the room, you can be the, the hardest nails lady in the room, but when we understand our need for God, that brings about a humility. It says they shall inherit the earth. This is a direct reference to the promised land. Ness is saying, you will have a place with God in heaven. You have a place to call home, a place of security, a future, an inheritance. So those who are humble are blessed. I like this one, verse 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Uh, what's so interesting about hunger and thirst is they're never satisfied, right? Have you ever had a meal so awesome that you didn't eat the next one? Man, Man, you just had this amazing meal, you skipped out on the next one, maybe even two meals, but chances are, very quickly, soon thereafter, you had another meal. Because... Hunger and thirst continue to have this desire and need that this passion I mean so much of our world is focused around food. and we just stop and think about all the things we do that navigate and orientate around food. it's this passion of ours. so in a sense, this hunger and thirst for righteousness is this passion for doing what is right, not only in our own lives, this personal righteousness, but seeing a social righteousness, seeing doing what's right in the eyes of God in the world as a whole. So those are blessed who hunger for what is right, who have a passion for what is right. Maybe that's a way in which, God, you want to engage with Jesus. You want to seek a, Help me to know what that looks like, Jesus. For they shall be satisfied. Again, because Jesus is right there. He is the one who will ultimately bring about righteousness through his work on the cross. Verse 7, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive Mercy. I love this one because now that we've trusted in Jesus for forgiveness of sin, we've already received mercy. We know what it looks like. We know how to offer it so we, we can pass it on to others you know, because we've been forgiven much. We can then offer that forgiveness to others and basically saying, you shall, be, you shall receive mercy. I mean, it's just a cyclical thing where, uh, you know, God's mercy has been shown to us and we can show it to others and then we'll receive more from God. We, we've received and continue to receive mercy from him. Uh, As a follower of God, is your life characterized by being merciful? Eight, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. To the Hebrews, the heart was the center of the person, the center of the soul. For the Greeks, it was the mind. Is uh, something to kind of keep in the back of your mind so as you read different things? Say, well, who, who's speaking here? Is it a, someone have a Greek influence or a Hebrew influence? And this would be, uh, would be coming from a Hebrew perspective. And so this uh, pure of heart isn't just oh, you know, having good intentions. It's about all the, the, the seat of the, the soul, the person. It's about a focus, a, a single-mindedness, pure of heart. You'd be single-minded in what you're doing, not double-minded. You ever done a three-legged race? You ever done a three-legged race where your partner wanted to go the other direction? Probably a little more difficult, right? Because they're double-minded. And so, blessed are those who are single-minded, who are pure in heart, for they shall see God. I love this. Being pure in heart opens our eyes to the work of God. When We're single-minded focused on that. And I guarantee you, as we turn our focus more towards God and can... So this, is, this is a better description of us as we continue to, to deal with sin and repent and, and pursue and engage Jesus, and he helps us to become single-minded on him. We will see God working more and more in our lives around us. Verse 9, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. This peacemaker is serving to reconcile man and God, those who would uh, point people to Jesus They should be called sons of God. The Old Testament, that that would be a reference to angels, but in this context, it's become more like God, sharing his character, basically saying that those who would follow God, those who would follow Jesus, would be peacemakers. And the last one is is verses uh, 10 through 12. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and Be glad. For your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecute the prophets who are before you. There will be opposition to righteousness. And so as you take this journey with us, as you seek to engage Jesus and bring about righteousness in your life, there will be opposition. There are too many in our world who are saying you're guaranteed prosperity when you pursue Jesus. And that is simply not true. Is there potential for prosperity? Yeah, there is. Is it a guarantee? No. What the guarantee is, is verse 10 there. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So we're not guaranteed prosperity in this world, but we sure are in the next. We're guaranteed a place in God's kingdom, in his realm. Yes, there'll be opposition. So we can stop and ask this question, what does this change for me? So if Jesus is God, if I believe that to be true, and he's saying this is what it looks like to be a follower of God, am I a person of hope, repentance, humility, a right understanding of sin, a passion for what's right? Am I merciful? Is my focus singly on God? Am I a person of of peace? Um, Do I I face opposition with joy knowing that there's a guarantee of opposition when when I'm walking in righteousness? I challenge each one of us to live differently because of who Jesus is. Let him be that one thing that changes everything. How you handle your relationships, how you engage in this world, in this community, let it all change because of who Jesus is and what he calls us to. Uh, I want to leave with one last piece of homework. Um, If you've already something I've said, something you know, through the, the Beatitudes, if one of those uh, characteristic traits already hit you and you're like, you know what, this is, this is enough for me. I, I got my homework, I got some things I need to work on. That's fine, take that and, and, and use that and don't listen to what say no. If you're still like, you know, I'm not sure what to do with this, Steve. I'm not sure how to take a next step in growth. I want you to find someone that you know loves you and that you can trust and ask them this question. What is it like to be on the other side of me? What is it like to be on the other side of me? As someone who deals with me on the other side, would you see me as a person of peace, as a person of hope? You, know, you can bait the question and go through that list of, of the, the Beatitudes or you can just ask open-ended, hey, what's it like to be on this side, on this side of me? Sp- Speak of my life, don't just say, oh yeah, you're a nice guy, but I, I want to know, what are some areas that I, I can live differently because of who I believe Jesus is? Let's pray. Father God, you are an awesome guy. We thank you so much for who you are and what you're doing in this place. We thank you as we're just on, on the... On the shore of this new series, Father God, going through the Sermon on the Mount, I know we just rush in these Beatitudes, Father God, but we really want to sit in this truth, in this place of acknowledging that if, if Jesus is who he claims to be, that changes everything. Help us to see how you're calling our lives to be different. Uh, encourage us in the ways that we are already living differently because of who Jesus is and who he calls us to be, Father. Help us to see our next step clearly of how we can follow you. Father, I pray for each person here this morning that we would uh, truly experience your blessing, your blessing of, of an inner joy and peace because of a right standing with you. In front of us here who have not trusted in Jesus as our Lord and Savior, who are not in a right standing with you, Father God, because of that or because of unconfessed sin, I pray in this time as we praise you, God, through song that you would work in our hearts, that you would soften our hearts. That by the time we're done praising you through these three songs that we will be able to come to a place of surrender and trusting you for all things. Amen.